0: Let's get ourselves together and get into week five of our series called Equipped, where we are looking at spiritual disciplines. Today we're looking at a spiritual discipline that is actually the focal point and the goal of every other spiritual discipline that there is. Uh, We're going to be talking about the spiritual discipline of worship. And so, we thought that this would be a great opportunity to flip the order of the service so that you can begin by hearing a message about worship, and then you can end by immediately applying what you've heard. And if in hearing that you're thinking, well, hang on a second, I thought that worship was about more than just singing, you're absolutely right, it is more than just singing. However, it is not less than that. And so, with that, I want to read Psalm chapter 95, verses 1 through 11. It says, come, let us shout joyfully to the Lord. Shout triumphantly to the rock of our salvation. God gets it. Let us enter his presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout triumphantly to him in song. For the Lord is a great God, a great king above all gods. The depths, I love verses like this, the depths of the earth are in his hand and the mountain peaks are his. The sea is his, he made it. His hands formed the dry land. Mm. Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the sheep under his care. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massah in the wilderness, where your fathers tested me. They tried me, though they had seen what I did. For 40 years, I was disgusted with that generation. I said, there are people whose hearts go astray. They do not know my ways. And so I swore in my anger, they will not enter my rest. This is God's word. This chapter that we just took the time to read through is is, uh, probably the the ultimate chapter in the Word of God when it comes to uh, understanding worship because it tells us basically everything that we need to know. It tells us what worship is. It tells us why we need to worship. And it tells us um, how to worship in a way that actually heals us and transforms us, and so those three things are what we're going to be talking about this morning as we discuss the discipline of worship. So first and foremost, uh, when you're talking about worship, I think the the first thing you have to do is define what it actually is, and the answer of this text and the answer of Scripture generally, uh, I didn't come up with this, but I think this really is the best definition of worship that I've ever heard. Worship is the act of ascribing ultimate value to something in a way that engages your entire being. I'm gonna say that one more time. Worship is the act of ascribing ultimate value to something in a way that engages your entire being. And so, what I want to do on the front end is just kind of look at that definition from from both angles. First off, the idea that this is meant to engage our entire being. Uh, it, it's it's remarkably easy to to walk through Psalm 95 and notice that it can be broken into three sections because there's three different calls to worship. You have the first one in verse one, you have the second one in verse six, and you have the last one in verse eight. And um, in verse one, we are called to worship God in a way that engages our emotions, because very emotional language is being used. We're commanded to sing and to shout joyfully and triumphantly and with thanksgiving. Very emotional language. All right, then in verse six, we're called to worship God in a way that engages our our volition or our will, because the language there is that of submission. We're told to come before God, To bow down before God, to kneel before God as we would before a great king. All of that is the language of the will. And then at the end in verse 8, what you'll find is a call to to worship God in such a way that actually engages the mind and the intellect. Because it talks about actually hearing God's voice. Uh, and responding to what you have heard in a way that, that's appropriate. And so what you're seeing here, uh, k- kind of on the front end, is this idea um, that worship is something that's meant to be an all-encompassing thing for, for us as, as people. And I think that's, that's uh, really important to understand. I think it's, it's really easy to, to, to fail to grasp. But what this means for us today is that if you enter into a worship service... And, and you, you find yourself, you know, agreeing with the doctrines and the beliefs and the statements, um, and you walk away and it was intellectually stimulating, but it never really in, engages you, like in your inner being, you never really have a sense of the beauty of God and the joy that should accompany that. What that means is that worship in your life is incomplete. And the other side of that is also true. It means that if you, were, if, you, if you were to walk into a worship service and you have all of these vibrant outward displays of emotion, you're weeping and you're sobbing, and from the outside looking in, anybody would look at you and say they're having a transcendent experience with God. If all of that happens to you, but that does not result in a change in who you are and how you live, if that doesn't result in a, in a surrender of your will to the tune that your character and behavior begins to change fundamentally, then then. Same thing, you, that, that worship is actually incomplete because according to Psalm 9, 95, worship is something that's meant to engage every part of you and every part of me. Our emotions, our will, and our intellect. And so, so the, 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 the question that leaves us with is, what is it exactly that's supposed to engage every aspect of, of, of who we are? And the answer, like we said on the front end, is it's the act of ascribing ultimate value to something. Now, here's what I mean by that. When you read Psalm 95, what's clear is that um, all of the engagement of the emotion and the will and the mind um, is derived from something that the psalmist is doing in this psalm. All right, uh, you can actually see it in two different places. In verses 1 and 2, we have a call to worship but in verses three through five, we have a, a solid reason why we should worship. The psalm says, For the Lord is a great God, a great king above all gods. The depths of the earth are in his hand, and the mountain peaks are his. The sea is his. He made it. His hands formed the dry land. Similarly, verse six, you see a call to worship immediately followed with a reason why we should worship. Verse seven says, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the sheep under his care. So what you're seeing here is that the psalmist is just simply reminding himself of who God is and what God has done until there's this explosion in his life that leaves him changed. And that really is the essence of worship. What we're doing when we worship is is, is worship starts rationally. It starts with thinking about who God actually is, who God has revealed himself to be, what he's done and what that means for us today until the the, the value of God and the beauty of God dawns on us in a way that actually changes us. And and to me, that understanding of of worship is really helpful because it it answers a a, a question that at least I've asked before and maybe you've asked yourself. Um, Why is it Why is it that so many people say that they believe in God and yet they're completely, seemingly unchanged by their belief? I don't know if you've ever asked that before. You ever heard somebody else ask that before? But this understanding of worship answers that for me because what this is showing us is that what determines the vibrancy of your spiritual life is not whether or not you believe in God, which may sound really strange. So let me say that again. What determines the vibrancy of your spiritual life is not whether or not you believe in God, it's whether or not you choose to actually worship him. Because lots of people believe in God in this kind of intangible, you know, he's kind of out there, something bigger than me sort of thing and James actually tells us that so do demons. Demons have a rock solid faith in the existence of God and a lot of people believe in God only in that way. Maybe they read a devotional from time to time. You know, Maybe they pray when they're afraid. Maybe they even attend church fairly regularly. and you know, All of that is great. All of that's a really good idea, but the point is you can be doing that your entire life without actually worshiping God. Right? But what is being laid out here for us in Psalm 95 is ascribing ultimate value to God in a way that engages every aspect of our being. That and nothing less is what we mean when we talk about the discipline of worship. So having laid that foundation, the next question that I want to get to is, is why we should worship. And the, the answer of this text, although it's, it's subtle, uh, is, is clear. The reason you and I should worship God is because no matter what we are, no matter who we say we are, what we believe, we already are worshiping something. It's just a question of whether or not the object of our worship is actually worthy of our worship. In, in other words... The world is not divided into people who who worship and people who don't worship. It's divided into people who worship things that will distort their life and people who worship the one thing that will give them life. And you see this in Psalm chapter 95, verse 3, where it says, for the Lord is a great God, and this is an interesting phrase to me, a great king above all God's. And what what David is saying there in context, if you had had read this as a part of the original audience, what David is saying here is that God is more worthy of worship than all of the other gods that people have a tendency to worship. And, And reading that today... I think a lot of people w- would look at that and say, okay, that made sense in David's day when polytheism was rampant, but we don't believe in a sea God and a sky God and a ground God anymore. You know, we've evolved past that. But what Psalm 95.3 is really getting across is this idea that the essence of worship, to really understand worship, you need to understand that your heart has already ascribed ultimate value to something. And the process of true worship entails first understanding whatever that is that object of, of of worship already is in your life and then transferring that over to God. That, that's what worship fundamentally is. And so worship is not, learning how to worship isn't about learning, some, learning how to do something new. It's about learning how to do something that we've all been doing our entire lives and just aiming it at God instead of anything else. That's what, that's when worship begins to really transform our lives. Now, um, you hear me talk a lot about you know our modern culture, and, and you know how modern people tend to think. When you start talking about the idea of of worshiping in a modern secular culture like ours, one objection that you'll hear often is, "Well, I'm not a religious person. I don't worship. I get that some people do that, but that's really not for me." Um, if I can, for a moment here, I'd like to challenge that idea, using a quote. Uh, if you've been around the church for any length of time, you've heard me read this before. I want to challenge this idea that, that there is any such thing as not worshiping by using a quote from, from a um, man named David Foster Wallace, who was not actually himself a believer. Uh, what I'm about to read you was, was given as part of a graduation speech to Kenyon College in, I think it was 2005. And as soon as I came across this, I've been in, you know, incorporating it as often as I can into, uh, into my messages. Here's what he had to say. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there's actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And an outstanding reason for choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. And then he, he broke this down. He said, if you worship money and things... If they are where you tap real meaning in life then you will never have enough never feel you have enough worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure and you will always feel ugly and when time and age start showing you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you worship power you'll feel weak and afraid and you'll need ever more power over others to keep the fear at bay. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, and you'll end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. Wallace was making two, I think, pretty profound points in that little speech there. First and foremost, his idea was that everybody worships. But secondly, and maybe equally as importantly, what he was saying is that worshiping the wrong thing will absolutely destroy your life. And that is an idea that you will find page after page, story after story, book after book in Scripture. Uh, scripture reminds us time after time that, that our, really our main problem underneath every other one of the problems that we have uh, has a lot less to do with what we experience in this life and a lot more to do with what we worship in this life. And to me, that explains a lot about human behavior. You know, it explains why some, some people can go through relational turmoil and, and, and go through a breakup and they seem to be able to move on with their life you know, pretty well, whereas other people go through the same thing and it is absolutely upending to them. And when the relationship's over, it's like their whole life is over. The reason for that, biblically speaking, is because love and romance or even family is a God to them. You know, it also explains why some people seem to have this, this you know, really well-balanced you know, work and career life, whereas other people have a tendency to sacrifice the things that are most important in life for their career, only to get to the end of their life and deeply regret having lived that way. The reason for that, again, is because they've made achievement or they've made success or they made their, their own reputation a god. And what all of those gods have in common is that, first off, they're false gods, they're not the real God, and what that means is that uh, they will they will never satisfy us, even if we get them, and they will never forgive us if we fail them. And all I mean by that is, if if you live for achievement, if that is your, if that is the functional object of your worship, if that is the 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 the, the functional God of your life, you live for achievement and you fail to live up to whatever. You know, rung you wanted to climb to on the ladder, you'll never, you'll never, you'll hate yourself forever. You'll live under the condemnation of that. No grace, no mercy will be extended to you. You know, if, if you live for romantic love, you know that's the functional god of your life, and and you fail that god because the relationship doesn't work out, or or you know you, you lose a loved one, or whatever it is, that god will punish you forever. That god will will pin you and will never let you up off the mat. But the god of the Bible is is is. Is a, is a different being altogether because even as this psalm reminds us here in Psalm 95 that the God of the Bible is a shepherd. And what we see in Jesus is that this is the one shepherd that was willing to lay his life down for his sheep. And so the point is that, that while every other God will demand our lives from us, the God of the Bible, the one true God, is the only God who actually laid his life down for us. And in doing so, what that proves to us today is not only is he the only God who's worthy of our worship, he's actually the only God who's safe for us to worship. And so given that understanding of worship, and I don't know if, if, if you've ever thought about it this way, but what this means for us is that when we gather together, as an ekklesia, the Greek word for a gathering, which is what the Greek word for the church, actually, it's just a gathering of Jesus' followers. When we gather together to worship, it's important for us to know that, that on the one hand, uh, yes, of, of course we're glorifying God. Of course in worship we're glorifying God. and I don't know if this is going to sound strange to you, but I think it's, it's, it's not good if that's the only thing that you understand worship to be doing. That the only purpose of worship is to glorify God. The reason I say that is because it's really important for us to understand that God is not this cosmically insecure being that needs us to gather together in a building every seven days to remind him of how great he is. And so in worship, on the one hand, absolutely we are glorifying God, but it is so important for us to realize that God has commanded us to the act of worship because in doing so, not only are we glorifying him, but we're actually healing ourselves. Because through the act of worship, what we're doing is we're pulling our heart off of all of the things that it naturally attaches itself to that will eventually destroy us. And through the discipline of worship, what we're doing is we're learning, to, we're, we're learning to hide more of our lives and more of our joy and more of our peace and more of our rest inside of God where nothing can threaten it ever again. And so what that means for you and I practically today, if I can just kind of bring this to the ground level, this means that if, if, if this morning you find yourself at a place in your life where you're sort of at the mercy of all of these uncontrollable emotions rolling around in your own heart. I mean, if, if, if you find yourself constantly struggling with anxiety, you know, over either the future or what other people think of you, if you find yourself constantly struggling with despondency because your life hasn't panned out the way that you wanted it to, the, the way that you swear it should have, Or or if you find yourself constantly struggling struggling with a kind of hopelessness, you've lost future orientation, you don't really know who you are anymore, you don't have this passion to live like Jonah in Jonah chapter 4, there's a lot of ways that you can respond to that. But ultimately what we have to eventually realize is that the only thing that's going to truly heal us of those things is by reassigning the ultimate value of our lives from whatever it currently rests on to God where it belongs. That's the why behind worship, that worship is the, it it truly is. It would be so unkind of God if he did not command us to worship him because it's in the discipline of worship and only through the discipline of worship that you and I can be healed and can be made into people who cannot be robbed of our joy. That's why Francis Chan famously said, there is absolutely nothing more important you will do today than worship God. Now, in, in light of all that, I think the question is, is naturally and sort of obviously raised, if this is what we were made for, if this is what every spiritual discipline is meant to dead end on, if this is where we find life and healing and transformation, the question is, how do we do this the way that God has called us to do it? In other words, what I'm asking is, how can you and I worship in a way that genuinely leads to transformation and healing in our lives? And what I want to end our time on uh, is is looking through Psalm 95, I want to pull out four things that this text says you and I need if we're going to worship in a way that actually transforms us. This isn't so much four things that we have to do as much as four things that we need. The first is this. If you and I are going to worship in a way that transforms us, number one, we need community. Now, this is so obvious about this psalm, that it's actually easy to miss it, but but first and foremost, everything about this psalm is written in the plural. What, what we're told here is, come let us shout joyfully, let us enter his presence, let us worship and bow down. Everything about Psalm 95, what it is, it is a call to worship in community. Now, having said that, uh, I think it's, it's, it's important to note that of course we are called to worship God individually. Of course we're called you know, to spend time with God individually, personally, privately, but from, from what I can see in scripture and from what I, what I can see in my own life, uh, I can't point to a Bible verse to back this up, so this is really just my opinion, but from what I understand, our private times of worship are really just meant to prepare us for our corporate times of worship when we gather together again as God's people. And and to kind of give you an idea of of why this is so vital, let me just tell you a a, a personal story from my life. Um, A really good friend of mine is getting ready to meet his third child. Uh, When I say getting ready, I mean they're, you know, just moments away, like it it could be any hour kind of thing. And so I I called him earlier this week, and uh, I wanted to see how he was doing and, and how he was processing things, and we got talking about you know, what it's like to add a third to the mix. You know, you switch from man-to-man coverage to zone defense kind of thing. But in talking to him about that, of course, I thought about uh, my own third child, which is my, my son, Hayes, uh, who just turned two. And um, I had a moment this week watching my kids. If you're a parent, I'm sure you can sympathize with this. I had one of those moments where you, it was just kind of surreal. You were, you know, kind of drawn in by watching your kids interact. I was sitting in the front room of my house and I was watching my, my firstborn, Everett, It's going to be seven in a few days, uh, and and Hayes just play together. And um, while I was watching them, uh, two things dawned on me. I mean, first and foremost, obviously, uh, you know, I'm so thankful to get to know Hayes because he's, like I said, he just turned to, and so his, his speech, he's in that, that, that place in life where it, it, he just went from zero to 60. Like it exploded. And so we can actually have conversations now for the first time in our lives, and he is hysterical. He keeps us laughing all the time. Uh, and so I'm, I'm so thankful to know him, but what really, what really kind of grabbed me when I was watching him and Everett play together is not just how thankful I am to know him, but how thankful I am for the way that he has allowed me to know Everett in different ways. And what I mean by that is, just the presence of Hayes in our family has drawn out all these aspects of Everett that I know I'd never get to see except for Hayes, because what I get now, because Hayes is a part of our family, is I get to see Everett as this older brother, you know, caring for and, and loving on his little brother, and uh, you, you can see it already. You know, Hayes looks up to Everett like he looks up to you know God. You know, he's his older brother. I mean, a guy practically walks on water, and I get to see Everett you know, being so patient with him uh, and, and, and loving on him and giving him hugs and giving him piggyback rides around the house, and it just dawned on me that if God had not seen fit to add Hayes to our family, I wouldn't have more of Everett. I would have less of him. And the idea there is that, that you can really only know somebody completely if you know them inside the context of community. It's not enough to just interact with somebody individually, you need to see how that person is drawn out by and interacts with other people in the context of community. Now, now having said that, let me just ask you, if that is true of a finite human being, then how much more true is that of an infinite God in whose image every human being has been made? That's why this idea of corporate worship is such a theme throughout Scripture, both Old Testament and New. And that's why in this psalm we are being called to worship in community. And, and I, I realize that because I'm, I'm, I'm preaching in, in 2021, I realize that what I'm saying it kind of cuts across the grain of our modern Western individualistic consumer understanding of spirituality. Because the, the way that a lot of people operate today, and I don't want to needlessly step on any toes here but I, I feel like I would be unfaithful if I didn't point out what I'm about to say. One of the things that, that I, you know, I've talked to other kind of um, pastor friends about, and one of the things that I've noticed personally is that, that today, the way that a lot of people tend to operate, this was a common thing before COVID. I think it's more common now in COVID, and I think it's only gonna get more common post-COVID, is a lot of people like to practice what you could call DIY spirituality, do-it-yourself spirituality, Where where a lot of people, even even professing Christians, have this tendency to isolate themselves and to kind of piecemeal their spiritual experience together by just listening to their favorite preachers and then disconnecting from a local gathering of, of Jesus followers. The reason that that's an issue is because in Hebrews chapter 10 verse 25, we are actually commanded to not forsake the assembling of ourselves together. And so, to, to anybody listening to me right now who who may find themselves maybe find yourself you know largely disconnected from a local gathering of God's people, regardless of what your reason for doing that is. And I'm not even suggesting that there are no legitimate reasons for for, for doing that for a time. I'm just saying whatever your reason is, uh, whether you have legitimate health concerns that are legitimate health concerns whether you, you know, you really hate wearing a mask or you had a bad experience or, or you know, it's a, some, some other infinite number of, of, um, of reasons. What Psalm 95 is first and foremost, it's a reminder to you and I that we need to worship in community. And so in reminding us of that, it also invites everyone who comes to this passage, it invites us to ask ourselves the question, and ask yourself the question, how are you going to get that need met? Because it is an actual need that we have according to God. So first and foremost, in order to worship in a way that truly transforms us, we need community. All right, secondly, what this psalm reminds us of is that if we are going to worship in a way that truly changes us, number two, we need the truth. Um, when you walk through Psalm 95, what's clear is that the psalmist has a, a, he has concrete ideas about what God is like. He says that um, God is this great king. God is a, a creator, a maker. And he even says that God is a shepherd. And the question that that raises is where did he get his view of God? You'll notice that in Psalm 95, the author does not say, I really like to think of God this way. The the, the place that the the author of this psalm got his view of God, uh, he got his view of God by submitting himself to the self-revelation of God found in Scripture. And the principle there is that genuine transforming worship will always have as its foundation the self-revelation of God in Scripture. Again, that is not something that, that modern minds particularly like to hear. Because what what a lot of people like to do in in, in the modern world is sort of what Thomas Jefferson did. Uh, I think you've heard me say this before. Thomas Jefferson famously took a penknife to the Bible, and he cut out every passage of Scripture that he did not like or didn't agree with, or he thought, there's no way God's really like that, or Jesus couldn't have actually done that. He cut all of that out of the Bible, and he was left with what is famously called the Thomas Jefferson version of the Bible, uh, what's, what's important to understand about that is that in doing that, Thomas Jefferson did not just create his own version of the Bible. He created his own version of God. Amen. And there is a, a, probably more so than there ever has been, because of, you know, post-modernity and the way that we're all taught to think by our culture, there is a, a tendency for people, even people who, who profess to be Christians, to approach Scripture with that same mindset. Where, where instead of, of allowing God's word to preside over me, I preside as judge over God's word. And there's this tendency to to, to come to scripture with this kind of posture that says, well, that, you know, that doesn't make sense. Um, that couldn't have really happened. That doesn't really resonate with me. You know, that had to be cultural. There's no way God expects people to live like that today. And so you just cut that part out. And... and, and, and you know, I bring all this up to remind us that when you approach Scripture that way, you're not just creating your own version of the Bible, you're creating your own version of God. You're creating a version of God who cannot convict you, a God who cannot confront you, and a God who cannot confound you because he's small enough to fit into your own understanding of who he is and what he's like. And I, I, I found this quote... Uh, um, over a year ago now by Evelyn Underwood. Nobody speaks to this idea better than she does. I'm just going to read this to you. She said, if God were small enough to be understood, he wouldn't be big enough to be worshipped. Man, (laughs) if you find yourself at a place in life where God no longer confounds or confronts or convicts you, you are no longer operating with God. Because if he's small enough to fit into your own understanding, he's not, he, it's not the real God. He's not big enough to be worshipped. And so secondly, we need truth if we're going to worship in a way that generally transforms us. Thirdly, uh, what we need is the spirit. And although uh, the word spirit does not actually technically appear in Psalm 95, what this psalm does remind us of is what the ultimate purpose of worship is. It's to enter into the presence of of God. Let us enter his presence. That's what worship is fundamentally about. And and, and a thoughtful person might read that or hear that and think, well, that sounds kind of strange because isn't God everywhere? Isn't his presence, isn't he omnipresent? So what does that mean to enter into God's presence and worship? And it's true that there are even other Psalms that talk about the omnipresence of God. But in Psalm 51, David has this really interesting request of God dealing with sin in his own life. David specifically asked God, he said, banish me not from your presence or cast me not away from your presence, O God. And and the way that you explain that, what that means is that although God's presence, although he is omnipresent, what the role of the Holy Spirit is, Jesus explained this in John's gospel account the night before he went to the cross, the role of the Holy Spirit is to make the presence of God known in such a way that we experience it in a way that changes us. And, and, and just so we're clear, that and nothing less should be the goal of our gatherings each and every time we gather. that church services should never be reduced to you know, let me get an, uh, an individual dose of inspiration or some emotional high that I can ride throughout the week, that, that our, our, the posture of our hearts as we gather together should be one that says, God, would you, would you allow me to experience your presence in a way that genuinely changes me? If, uh, if you want uh, um, an example of, of what that actually looks like, this is a strange story, um, but this happened to me uh, I experienced this firsthand in this very room, probably twenty five years ago, in a way that I have never quite experienced it since. Uh, some of you know this, some of you probably don 't that this this church actually used to have a school it was called Severn Covenant Church school, and I attended this school from first through seventh grade and I remember um, I know I was either fifth or sixth grade. I know that. I don't know which one it was, but I'm positive it was either fifth or sixth grade. We, uh, we used to have chapel on Fridays in, the, in this room, and I remember um, there was a chapel service where the Spirit of God moved in a way that I've, I've, I have never quite experienced anything like that since. And if you're anything like me, you were already skeptical of what I'm saying. Just give me a chance here, all right? Uh, we, we had a, a speaker come in and deliver a word to us. It was actually Sammy Foster, who is now the head pastor of Lighthouse Church. I talked to him about this not too long ago. He said the same thing. He has never experienced anything like this since. I don't remember a single sentence from whatever message Sammy delivered to us, but I remember that by the end of that service, every, every kid in the elementary school was weeping. And I, it, I know what you're thinking. I don't actually know what you're thinking. Here's what I would be thinking. I would be thinking, okay, well, kids are impressionable. They see one kid cry, and that's what it's supposed to look like. Every kid cries. But listen to this. We, we never did this before this. We never did this after this, and the teachers didn't make us do this. At the end of that service, we gathered ourselves into little prayer groups and prayer huddles, and as we were praying, I remember this like it was yesterday, we were confessing sin. We were acknowledging that we had been unkind to some of our classmates And we were convicted by the the fact that God was calling us to begin inviting them into our social circles. I don't have to tell you, that's not how fifth and sixth graders talk. There's a reason for the phrase, as cruel as school children. And the only way you explain what happened that day is the, the, the Holy Spirit of God dropped in a way that totally flattened us. Now, Jesus talked about the Holy Spirit of God. Uh, In John chapter 3, and he uses this analogy, he likened the workings of the Holy Spirit to the wind, which is such a cool analogy, because what that means for us is that a Christian who is skilled in the discipline of worship is really fundamentally like a sailor, because sailors can't make the wind, but they can make themselves ready for it, and they know exactly what to do when it starts blowing. That's exactly what a Christian who's skilled in the discipline of worship does, And so I'll repeat this before we move on to our final idea that the posture of our hearts when we gather together as God's people should never be one of let me just get inspired individually or let me just get an emotional high that helps me forget about my problems for a minute. Let me get some, you know, relevant practical tools to help me more successful in life. All of those things are good. And I even believe that a good church will provide those things. But underneath all of that, and far more important than any of that, the posture of our heart every time we gather as God's people should be, Father, would you make your presence known through your spirit in a way that transforms us? That is the goal of worship. So thirdly, we need the spirit. But fourthly, and this is going to be our final idea during our time together, we need uh, what I'm going to call gospel Sabbath rest. Uh, fairly obvious, but the end of this psalm is a confusing one uh, because the beginning is, is about entering into the presence of God in worship with joy and thanksgiving and singing and shouting, and it ends where God is basically saying, hey, you remember that first generation of Israelites that I, I led out of Egypt? Yeah, those people didn't listen to me in the wilderness, so I let them die there. The end. You know, I'm I'm just going to go out on a limb here and say, if a worship leader tried to write a hit single today, and that's what they came up with, it's probably going to get edited before it gets published. I'm thinking. So it raises the question: Why? Why? Uh, It's it's um it's fascinating to me that in in uh, Hebrews, this specific psalm is actually referenced. It's Hebrews chapter 4 that, that speaks directly to and actually quotes different parts of Psalm 95. And the author of Hebrews uh, is is asking the question that I think this psalm raises, if you think through it um, deeply enough. The question is, okay, if, if after Moses and that faithless generation of Israelites died in the wilderness, right, that's what happened, if after them Joshua brought the nation of Israel into the promised land where they did experience rest, then why is it that centuries after that, Psalm 95 is warning God's people not to miss out on that rest? Why, Basically what I'm asking is, why is this Psalm warning people not to miss out on something that they've experienced for centuries now? So in, in, in uh, Hebrews chapter 4, this is spoken to. It's, it's verses uh, 5 through 10. I'll read it to you. It says in verse 5, again, in that passage, he says, God says, they will never enter my rest. That's a direct quote from Psalm 95. Since it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news did not enter because of disobedience, again, he specifies a certain day, today, speaking through David after such a long time as previously stated, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Again, directly referencing Psalm 95. But, but listen to verse 8. It says, For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. Therefore, a Sabbath rest remains for God's people. For the person who has entered his rest has rested from his own works just as God did from his. So so again, the author of Hebrews here is being perfectly logical. He's asking the question, why is it that David in Psalm 95 is warning worshipers not to miss out on a rest that his people had experienced for centuries now? And the answer is because the physical rest that the nation of Israel experienced in the promised land really just pointed forward to a deeper kind of rest That is still available for us today that we can miss out on if we are not careful. The question is, what kind of rest are we talking about here? And the the author of Hebrews answers that. That just as God rested on the seventh day from his physical work of creation, so in the gospel, you and I can now rest from our spiritual work of trying to create a righteousness in our own lives. And the way that we do that, the way that we have access to that is, is through the gospel. Because the gospel, like I say every week, is that Jesus came to this earth. He lived the perfect life that you and I could never live. He died in atoning death as our substitute in our place. And the moment that you and I believe the gospel, what happens in that moment is you now enter into the rest that your soul has longed for. Whether or not you've realized it your whole life. Because now you can rest from your spiritual work. Because in Jesus, you no longer have to live up. In Jesus, you no longer have to be perfect. Because in Jesus, it's not about the life that you hand God. It's about the life that God has handed you in Christ. Amen. Amen. All right, amen, amen. And And I just want to remind you that whether or not you are a religious or irreligious person, meaning whether or not you're a religious person working as hard as you can through your moral efforts to try to save yourself and get God to bless you or you're an irreligious person working as hard as you can simply to satisfy yourself and find fulfillment outside of God regardless of where you fall on the spectrum what what both of those groups of people have in common is they are working you're working that's an exhausting way to live And the rest that our soul needs that we're never going to be able to find in this world is only found in the gospel. Because in Jesus, God already loves you and God already accepts you on the basis of the finished work of Christ on your behalf. And the reason that this is at the very end of a psalm on worship is because if you don't understand gospel rest... If you don't understand that you already have that in Jesus, then there's going to be a tendency for you and I to try to turn worship into one more thing we add to our checklist that we have to do as a kind of duty to try to get God to love and accept us. And then we've turned worship into a work, and it's not. Worship is not a work. Worship is a response to the finished work of Jesus on your and my behalf. So I'm I'm going to call the worship team up. We're going to close today. And I actually want to leave you with a quote from the Lord of the Rings. (laughs) which (laughs) natural segue here. This is actually a book that I, I, um, a trilogy rather, that I read for the first time in quarantine. And in in the third book, if you haven't read it, uh, there's this place where Sam, who's the main character's sidekick, um, he's at this place where he is, he's so overwhelmed by the darkness and the evil of this world that he's just ready to give up uh, because he finds it so in, 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 empowering and discouraging and overwhelming to him. And I, <clears throat> on a serious note, I just have this, this, this feeling that there's a lot of people who probably find themselves in that very same place, maybe for different reasons. What happens in the story is, is one night he goes out, and he looks into, this, into the sky, and he sees a star. And, and here's what the book says. <clears throat> it says, the beauty of the star smote his heart as he looked up, out of the forsaken land and hope returned to him. For like a shaft, clear and cold, the thought pierced him that in the end, the shadow was only a small and passing thing. There was light and high beauty forever beyond its reach. Many times he'd been defiant rather than hopeful. He was always thinking of himself. But now for a moment, his own fate and even his master's ceased to trouble him. And putting away all fear, he cast himself into a deep, untroubled sleep. One of the ways that you can respond to the troubles of life is through defiance, where you just steal yourself and you determine that you're not going to give up and you're not going to give in. But what Sam realized that night is that there's another way to deal with the troubles of life and find peace. And it's not through defiance, it's through hope. And what happened to him is that he realized there was this light And there was this high beauty beyond the reach of all the darkness that he was experiencing or ever would experience. And the moment that he was pierced by that, the moment that he encountered that, it freed him. And that's exactly what we're doing in worship. That in worship, what we're doing is we're moving ourselves into this place where we have this experience with a kind of light and a kind of high beauty that transcends everything that happens in our lives and in this world. It transcends covid it transcends our financial problems, transcends our relational issues, our childhood trauma, our loneliness, our anxiety, our despondency, and all the brokenness and all the corruption of a world that's been so stained by sin. But know this, know this, that in saying that, worship is not an escape from reality. It is an escape into ultimate reality. The reality that there is a God who has created everything, To whom one day all will give an account he will restore all things to the way that he originally intended them to be destroying evil once and for all but that same god loves us and he saves us by grace through faith in the name of jesus and so we are going to conclude today applying what we've talked about we're going to worship and as we do so i hope you understand that these are not just songs that we're about to sing These are vehicles through which we ascribe ultimate value to a God who is ultimately valuable. And in doing so, it's you and I who will find life. This is the discipline of worship. That's it, that's all. Let me pray for us. Father God, there is nothing greater that we will do with this handful of breaths that you've given us called life than to worship you. And so as we close today, God, would you give us an encounter with you? and a greater awareness than maybe we've ever had of how beautiful you are and how powerful you are and how holy you are and how sovereign you are. God, would you simply allow us to experience you? Because if we enter into your presence, if we have an encounter with you, we're gonna change in the ways that that we need to change and all of the ways that only you can change us. There is no greater honor than for us to be able to enter into your presence and worship. By grace through faith in the name of Jesus, amen. Uh